Hi everyone, this is Mrs. McFedries. We're going to read chapter 8. At the very beginning, the evidence that we see at the top of chapter 8, oh, hopefully you have your book out, right? So when we do this, it's much better for you and your learning if you're reading it as I'm reading it. So just follow along with me. You can even read out loud, <coughs> excuse me, in and it'll kind of read at the same time if you want to. Chapter 8 at the top. <clears throat> this is written by an observation by Master George Percy. The 6th and 20th day of April, about 4 o'clock in the morning, we descried the land of Virginia. So we start chapter 8. We're on the ship. They left the islands and they're heading toward Virginia. The tween deck seems dark after all those sunlit days on the island. We are sailing north now toward Virginia. Reverend Hunt says we will travel right past Florida without stopping because it belongs to the Spanish. He says that 40 years ago, the French had a colony at Fort Caroline in Florida. He tells me how he heard that the Spanish came and massacred all of the French settlers, men, women, and children. No, we will not be foolish enough to land at Florida. Foul weather makes the tween deck even darker. Thunder cracks loud as a cannon shot. I look up through the hatch opening and see black storm clouds boiling in the sky. Take in the sails, Captain Newport orders. Another crack of thunder booms and lightning flashes. I hear the wind whip the rigging against the masts. The sea bucks and the ship rolls and jerks. Men begin to retch again as if they were new to seafaring. The rain comes down in torrents. And when we shout that it is flooding the tween deck, the sailors oblige us by covering up the hatch so that we are shut in the dark with only stale, vomit-scented air to breathe. Lanterns are lit, and they swing wildly, making shadows move like ghostly dancers. The gentlemen complain bitterly. Wait, I have to stop. Before we go on, let's look at that sentence again. Lanterns are lit and they swing wildly, making shadows move like ghostly dancers. Okay, first, whenever you have like something, it's a simile, right? So that's a great simile. And then the other thing is, what a wonderful descriptive sentence. Um, the way moving like ghostly dancers. That makes sense to me. I can picture it. All right, sorry, I'll keep reading. The gentlemen complain bitterly. We should go back to England, they say. We should have reached Virginia weeks ago. We must be off course. The voyage is ill-fated. I lie in my bed, angry and discouraged. Captain Newport has been telling us for weeks that we'll see land any day. Maybe we are off course. I am sick of the tween deck, sick of sailing, sick of the storms that come one after another. And this is the most violent storm yet. The sound of crashing waves in, is a roar in my ears, punctuated by the creaking of the wooden ship. <clears throat> James and Richard lie next to me. Are we going to die? James asks. Will the waves break upon the hull? I hear a loud crack and it makes me jump. It is followed by frantic squawking, and I realize it is only a chicken crate that is smashed into an ale barrel down below. Shut up, James, I snap at him. I'm annoyed that he could scare me into mistaking a sliding chicken crate for a cracking ship's hull. Yes, you're going to die. Every one of us is going to die, I say. James begins to whimper, and I'm sure 
He's dripping snot onto the bed. Ah, do you want your stepmom now? I taunt him. Richard sits up and slugs me in the arm. Stop it, he shouts over another rumble of thunder. Leave him be, you, you stinking jail rat. You're nothing but a common thief. In a second, I'm up on my knees. I'm pounding Richard with my fists, punching his face, his shoulders, anywhere I can hit. He is kicking, flailing. He kicks me in the stomach, and I can't breathe. James scoots out of your way, out of the way and wails for Reverend Hunt. In the shifting shadows, it's hard to see. I swing. My fist connects with Richard's teeth, and I feel my knuckles cut open. Now Richard is on his feet. He whacks me on the side of the head. I feel dizzy, but I jump in, ready to meet him toe-to-toe. Strong arms close around my chest, dragging me back away. I see Richard's face, bloody, blood dripping from his mouth down his chin. It's not Reverend Hunt who has dragged me away. I will not get a sermon on how fighting is not the Lord's way, how I must learn to act from love instead of anger. No, it is Captain Smith who has hold of me. I know better than to struggle. He drags me to where the chain bolts lie, then releases me. Stand on one foot, he orders. I hesitate a moment, thinking this is a stupid thing he's ordered me to do. He cuffs me for hesitation, for my hesitation. He does, cuffs means like um, the back of your hand kind of smacking into you, maybe your face or something. It is the first time, or, or like your shoulder. Um, okay, it's, it is the first time he has hit me, and it makes me want to run. There's no place to run. Stand on one foot, he shouts. I can do this ridiculous thing or be cuffed again, harder. It is difficult to balance on the rocking ship, but I try. I lift my leg, balance on my right. The ship lurches. I stumble, catch myself. I try again, fall against a barrel. Do it, Captain Smith orders. He's glowering at me. Stand on one foot, you fool. Tears catch in my throat. He is worse than my father. I lift one leg. I balance for a split second, but Captain Smith shoves me and I fall into the tween deck floor. I shout in frustration. He stands over me. Does it work, Samuel? He demands. Can you stand on one foot when a storm rocks the ship? Can you keep your footing when I shove you? I am bewildered and angry. I shake my head. No, I cannot balance on one leg in a storm. Captain Smith picks up the chains that recently held him prisoner. In London, it might have worked for you. This standing on your own, treating other boys as if they don't matter. In Virginia, it will not work. Do you understand me? The wilderness is is like a ship in a storm. We will need one another to survive. He clamps the irons roughly around my ankles and wrists. If these blasted gentlemen refuse to learn that fact, then at least my page will learn it. This colony will need to stand on many legs if we are not to be toppled over in the Virginia wilderness. He goes back to his bed and I'm left to try to find a comfortable way to sleep in my chains between two crates. Friend who? The shout comes before dawn. It is followed by a loud ruckus up on deck, whooping and hollering, laughing and stomping. Everyone on the tween deck is awake in an instant. Captain Smith calls to Reverend Hunt. Reverend, do you pray up that storm last night? From the sounds of it, it blew us straight to Virginia. I am cold and stiff from sleeping, chained. 
curled up in a small space like a snail. I rub my eyes. My head hurts and my jaw aches. I need to sleep a slot bucket badly, and there is none within reach. I'm too proud to call for help, though, so I grit my teeth and wait. Someone lights a lantern, and men begin to stir. Reverend Hunt marches Richard over to me. His cheek is swollen, and one of his eyes is turning purple. I'm proud of my handiwork. Richard looks at me, and I see a half-smile across his face. I realize I must be purple and swollen, too, for him to look so satisfied. Reverend Hunt clears his throat. <clears throat> Richard has something to say, he tells me. Richard twists his shirt tail around his fingers. I'm sorry, f I'm sorry I hit you, he says quickly, and I won't call you those bad names anymore. I wonder if he means it or if he's just obeying Reverend Hunt, but mostly I'm hoping someone will figure out that I need a slop bucket before I soil my slops. Captain Smith ambles over. As I remember, it was important for someone to bring me a bucket in the morning when I was locked in those things, he says, and he yawns. But Samuel doesn't need anyone's help, so I suppose we'll just leave him be. It's the way he likes it. The three of them start to walk away. I'm about to burst. I jump to my feet. Uh, Captain Smith, sir, I call after him. Might I please have a slot bucket? Captain Smith looks at me and laughs. Me? <laughs> An officer serving my own page? I think not. I dance from one foot to another. Why is he tormenting me? I certainly can't ask Reverend Hunt to bring it to me. Then I understand. Richard is the only one I can ask. The only one who should be asked to bring a slap bucket to another servant. <sighs> I groan. I can't wait much longer or I'll be embarrassed beyond words and have no clean slops to wear. Richard, I try to keep the desperation out of my voice. I'm sorry for punching you last night. Bring me a bucket, would you? Richard glances at Captain Smith and grins, enjoying his moment of victory. But Captain Smith puts a quick stop to the gloating. Don't make the boy wait. Hop to it, he says. The moment Richard sets the bucket down, I drop my slops, have a seat, and relieve myself. Captain Smith seems satisfied with what I have learned about cooperation and he unclamps my chains don't let your anger get the best of you samuel he says learn to channel it and it will become your strength rather than your weakness i've seen that he has been channeling his anger at master wingfield and captain ratcliffe into his writing he is telling his side of the story i turn my attention to the excitement at hand have we really found virginia master wingfield pounds on the closed hatch I demand to know what is happening up there, he shouts. Finally, the sailors pull open the hatch and send down reports. We have entered a bay. There are tall trees along a sandy shoreline. There is no sign of savages, which is what they call the native people. Then they tell us we're dropping anchor. Our party will go ashore to explore. At last, we are allowed up on deck for our first sight of Virginia. It is green, quiet, and desolate. There are no natives coming to us in canoes as they did in the Caribbean, Caribbean islands. There are no houses, no huts, just wise old trees and spring leaf standing guard over the sandy shore. Quiet, desolate, and free. We can pick any place, any piece of forest or meadow and make it ours. A group of gentlemen and sailors get ready to go ashore. Bring picks and shovels, Master Wingfield orders. Captain Smith scoffs. 
I suggest we find a place to live before you go digging for gold. We can't eat gold. Master Wingfield gives him a disdainful look. Did you not read your contract with the Virginia Company? The part where it says we are to turn a profit for the company as soon as possible. We will eat the supplies we brought and dig for gold. The Godspeed and the Discovery are anchored nearby as well. I watch as the longboats are rowed to shore. About 30 men in all disbark disembark for the exploratory trip most of them gentlemen and sailors many of them have their muskets ready with slow matches burning those of us who are left be spend the day sitting or lying around either on deck or the tween deck waiting and while we wait the gentlemen soldiers carpenters laborers and servants all discuss their ideas about the new world You could get gold in a day. We'll need to plow and plant and live here a while. You won't catch me walking behind a plow. I've got presents to do that back in England. I say we eat the stars we're wrought, get the gold fast and go home. The gold is not where the biggest profit is. I want to explore, find a new passage to the Orient. The Virginia Company wants. Now that's how to strike it rich. If we can get goods, sell spices and jewels from India and China back to England without having to deal with those Ottoman Turks and their marked-up faces, just think of the profits we will make. And there's one lone voice, Reverend Hunt, who says he has not come for gold or to find the new passage to the Orient. He says we have been sent by God for more noble purposes, to bring the good news of Christ to the Virginia natives and to look for survivors from the Roanoke colony. Of course, as soon as he says it, all the other men agree that that's some of why they have come as well. But I know their hearts are set more on gold and profits than on finding lost colonists or saving souls. James and Richard have gotten hold of a deck of cards and are playing and laughing. I'm determined to stay out of trouble, so I don't say one mean thing to them all day. When I look at the quiet forest, I wonder what it will be like to live there, to build houses and create a settlement. I wonder what it will be like to do as Captain Smith says and work with the others rather than keeping to myself the way I have done for so long. It seems to me it will be strange, and I'm not sure I will like it. The cook starts supper. He throws a large chunk of pork and several pounds of peas with water into the cook pot. Later, he adds handfuls of sea biscuits. They are hard enough to break your teeth when they are dry, but in the piece porridge, they will become soft and chewy. At dusk, we hear voices and look out to see the men returning. They are in good spirits, and I wonder if they've found gold already. Just in time for supper, declares the cook, and he begins to ladle piece porridge into the mess pots. Suddenly, I hear a cry, then frantic shouting and someone moaning. I run to the railing. In the half-light of dusk, I see them, five of them, crouched on a hill, their naked bodies painted, arrows flying from their longbows. Already one of the sailors has fallen. No! I shout, as if my voice, my objection, can change anything. Use your muskets! Shoot them! I hear the command. Make ready your piece! Our men load their muskets, prime the pan, charge the piece with powder, put in the musket ball, ram down the charge, cock the match. But by the time the first musket shot rings out, 
the Indians are already leaving, creeping away silently on hands and feet like bears. The musket balls don't even come close to them. The injured men are brought to Dr. Thomas Watton aboard the Godspeed. A gentleman, Gabriel Archer, has been shot through both hands, and a sailor has been shot twice in the torso. I see now that this land is not so free and open. This is Indian land, and they do not want us here. And what is worse, it seems to me that their bows and arrows are quicker, more accurate, and can shoot farther than our muskets. So that's the end of chapter eight. Um, don't forget, you're gonna, you're gonna, after listening to this, you're gonna fill out the Google form and answer the questions, um, and turn it in. Make sure that you're looking at your book. I give clues to what the questions are and so if you look at the book you'll for sure find the answers and remember they're only in chapter eight so use your book to find that evidence so that when you fill out that form um, you do your best work all right and um, the next one will be chapter nine